be reading from John chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered columnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can, only, can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. 
I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the very work of the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll, you'll accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Amazing. Thank you so much, Becca. It's a long passage, isn't it? We've got a lot to get through. Um, today, I wonder if I could start just by praying for us. Jesus, we have sung and heard how you are the one who is lifted high, who reigns above all things. Would you come now in the power of your word, the presence of your spirit, and reign in us, and speak truth and life and hope to us from the words that we've just heard. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can probably uh, hear in my voice that I'm coming out of the far side of a cold. Um, it's kind of lingering around like a kind of unwanted house guest that kind of try and nudge towards the door, but a few days later it's still kind of there. I was hoping it would give me kind of like a, a kind of classy, young, like David Attenborough, gravitas to it. Um, I think more, it sounded like a chainsaw for most of the week and is now just sounding like someone's put a peg on my nose. So it's not quite the, uh, the vibe I was going for, but we'll see and hopefully it will survive for the next half an hour or so as we look through these verses uh, together. We are currently enjoying a series working through uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, it's an account of Jesus' life that is written by one of his disciples after a lifetime of contemplation and reflecting and wondering on the many things that Jesus said and did. And because of the context of how it was written, because that's John's purpose to kind of soak in everything that he knows of Jesus, to chew it over and mull it over and go deeply into what it is that Jesus really meant, what he was really talking about, what we find 
Sometimes are passages which are like this, which are long, which are extended reflections, which can seem on first reading a little bit dense, a bit confusing, packed full of maybe some unusual language and some complex arguments and some kind of visionary metaphors for us to unravel. Uh, If you've got a Bible that has in it uh, the words of Jesus in a red text, you'll see that almost all of this chapter is one long dialogue from Jesus. But the way that John has set it up, the way that it's been arranged, is like a courtroom drama. And so we find right at the start Jesus' supposed crime, the healing of the man by the pool, followed by this really lengthy kind of monologue just from Jesus, in which he provides his evidence, he stakes his claims, and he presents his witnesses. And this kind of Jesus on trial theme is a common theme throughout the book of John. It's right there in the introduction in chapter one, and the description of John the Baptist as a witness to the light. It's picked up here again by Jesus. It's there right at the end of his gospel as he kind of rests his case, uh, John, by declaring that his purpose for writing is to reveal to us the truth about who Jesus is. And so scattered throughout this whole book are these kind of courtroom themes, courtroom imagery, all this kind of stuff, and that come to a head almost at the end in Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate and the Jewish authorities. And that kind of trial there is mirrored in this chapter. It's like a precursor. It's a template of the accusations that are against Jesus, his claims about himself in response to those, and the evidence that he provides for them. And so over the next half an hour or so, we're going to work through each of those different aspects of the chapter, take each one in turn and see what Jesus has to say about himself. I don't know if you've ever seen an episode of Judge Judy. Um, This is going to be something like that, uh, where I'll be playing Judge Judy, uh, minus kind of the the hair uh, and the robes. But I I did bring my own gavel, so we've got that. to to note, and so we're going to kind of call this case to order. I need something a bit more impressive to to hammer with that, but we'll we'll find that way. We're going to go through, we're going to look at the law, we're going to look at the claims that Jesus makes, we're going to look at the evidence he provides for them, we're going to look at the judgment that's handed down, and ultimately we're going to look at the judge at the very end. And so first of all, uh, John sets out the supposed crime that Jesus has committed, the healing at the pool. And you'll notice from uh, having heard that whole chapter read out so wonderfully by Becca is that the part that strikes us as the most important, the most dramatic moment within this whole chapter occupies such a small part of the whole narrative. It was over and gone within the first slide. And that's why it's really helpful having the whole chapter read as we're seeing week on week. It enables us to fit the different pieces of the story together to get a sense of the wider whole that John is wanting us to come to grips with. And the story of the healing is, in a sense, a very minor part of the chapter. It's kind of the gateway into what John is really wanting us to understand, which is the claims that Jesus is making about himself, the evidence he's presenting for those. And so this morning, we're not actually going to spend a lot of time unpacking the healing itself, even though there's quite a lot within it that we could unpack. Instead, we're going to focus more on the conversation 
afterwards. The healing, though, marks the start of a number of sections within John's Gospel that compare Jesus with the Jewish festivals that make up the core of Israel's community and family life. And over the last few weeks, we've looked at a number of encounters that Jesus has with different Jewish cultural symbols. We looked at him uh, at a wedding. We looked at him at the temple. We've seen him meeting a rabbi. We've seen him at Jacob's well. And in all of them, we've seen how those cultural symbols are all really pointing to Jesus, how Jesus is the true and better thing that the symbols are all pointing us to. That's what John's wanting us to get hold of, that Jesus is the true and better bridegroom, whose death secures a union that lasts forever, that he is the true temple, the true meeting point between heaven and earth. He is the true word who speaks in order to bring life and new birth from above. He is the true well overflowing with eternal life to whom all are welcomed. And the essence of what we see again in this story is Jesus coming with compassion to someone. We've seen that again and again in Jesus' interactions with people. We saw it last week in Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. He comes with compassion. That's what he does again here. He meets somebody at the very bottom of the social pile, a friendless man who's endured an impossibly hard life. And he comes and meets with him with grace and with power. And he comes and brings transformation to his situation. And that same Jesus, the same Jesus we've been singing about, the same Jesus who rules and reigns for all eternity, is the one who comes to the people at the very bottom and says, I notice you. You matter. Here's what I want to do for you. That's what he says to us, to each of us today. He says, you matter. I notice you. What do you want me to do? And for some, that might be all you need to hear today. You could go home at this point, and if you did, I'd be very happy if you went away remembering that. Jesus is here today. He is moving in our midst as we've sung. He wants to meet with you today. What we find in his encounter with this man is that it's a story that takes place on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is the first of the four Jewish festivals that Jesus will be compared with in the coming chapters. That written into the very fabric of the Jewish law This is the one that is the most central to the life of the community. It's written into the kind of statutes of how they are to live their lives. It's the one that happens every week. It sets the tone for everything else that flows through their daily life because it marks the weekly period of rest when the community would cease working for a day to center on God with reverence and devotion. And we explored this in more depth during our Sabbath series uh, in the autumn. But essentially what we find at the start is a conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders around the true meaning and purpose of Sabbath. Is it a time when the law would forbid anything that looks like work, including healing, 
including even carrying a mat? Should all of those be banned in order to protect the sacredness of the day? Or is there something deeper going on there? And Jesus takes that conflict as the starting point. It's kind of the first um, sense that we've got of him and the Jewish leaders being at odds against one another. And then he blows the whole thing up. And as was revealed with each of those Jewish cultural symbols that we looked at, his message isn't that he's come to start an alternative religion. It's that he's bringing the whole storyline of the scriptures to fulfillment in himself. That everything that Sabbath was pointing to could be found in him. And if his healing on the Sabbath is the initial crime, his testimony that follows is like an explosive confession that makes the initial act pale in comparison. Look with me at verses 16 to 18. The Jewish leaders begin to persecute Jesus because of the work he's doing on the Sabbath, and his response is, God works on the Sabbath, and so do I. What he does, I do. And it takes the Jewish leaders no time at all to do the mental maths to see his claim not just a good teacher, as Nicodemus first thought. Not just a wise prophet, as the woman at the well first thought. But God himself. Imagine someone being brought before Judge Judy's small courts, small claims court. If you've uh, never seen Judge Judy, essentially it's, it's half an hour of ridiculous personal grievances. Um, like... Who's to blame for like a sports trophy being knocked off and broken um, and like a hundred pounds worth of compensation? All being solved by a lady who's a little bit grumpy uh, and has a lot of sass with which to bring kind of conclusion to all of these matters. Imagine someone coming before there for the most trivial thing you could imagine and instead declaring that actually they are the most wanted fugitive in the whole world hiding out in plain sight. John wants us to see that the healing, the story of what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath is not about what Jesus is doing. It's a question of who Jesus is. The healing is the gateway to Jesus' revelation of himself. And in the long dialogue that follows, he unpacks that in a number of different ways. He states his claim, he provides his evidence, he challenges his opponents. And first of all, he roots everything in his identity as a son. His identity is wholly and completely in knowing that he is loved. That from before the beginning of the universe, God existed as an infinite community of love, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons so tightly bonded together in love that there can be no other description for them, but one. And that because of that unity, Jesus does the same work of life as the Father does. He does what he sees his Father doing. He does the same. In the same way he might have learned carpentry from Joseph growing up, he's learned to do the work of his heavenly Father in bringing life wherever he goes. We've seen it in the last couple of weeks. Jesus, the source of new birth. Jesus, the source of eternal life overflowing from within. 
And again, we see down in verse 28 that this new life comes about by his word. God is the bringer of life right from the very beginning. The love of the Father, Son, and Spirit overflowing as life burst out through a word spoken into the darkness. And every minute of every day, he sustains the very universe by his word. He sustains our very lives by the breath of his spirit within us. That's who Jesus is claiming to be. And so if Jesus is God, if he is the eternal son, if he's overflowing with life, then of course he can heal on the Sabbath. Of course he can do the works that bring life on the Sabbath. That's what it was always meant to be about. Just as God works every day to bring life, so too did Jesus. It is a remarkable, outlandish claim, but it's one that's totally consistent with how John has been preparing us and leading us through his gospel. What we've looked at so far are not kind of separate, standalone encounters. Every week, John is bringing us through, helping us week on week to build on what we've heard before. He's adding more depth and more layers and more insight. This is not a claim that Jesus is making without evidence. He's not asking us to throw our minds out of the window as we come to him. And from verses 31 to 47, he outlines the evidence he presents in his defense. Verses 31 and 32, evidence from God, the one who is ultimate truth by the presence of his spirit through the kind of things that Jesus is doing that could only be from God. Verses 33 and 34, evidence of witness testimony from John the Baptist, the one who saw Jesus and declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 36, evidence of miraculous works, the seven signs that will find place within John's gospel of increasing significance, weight, and power, all leading up to the final sign of the cross and the resurrection. Verses 37 to 40, evidence from the pages of Scripture, prophecies given hundreds of years before he was born about what the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would look like, all of which are fulfilled through his life, death, and resurrection. Verses 41 to 44, evidence from Jesus' character, not one seeking glory for himself, but one always pointing to the Father, unlike those who've opposed him. And then the kicker, verses 45 to 47, evidence from Moses, the hero of the Jewish leaders who spoke of the Messiah to come, the very one that those opposing Jesus would have hoped would have backed them up, but actually his words only point to Jesus. They only point to one who would come and do these kind of things in this kind of way not to them. And as Jesus unpacks his arguments, it becomes clear throughout the narrative that the whole courtroom setup has in fact been flipped upside down. It looks like Jesus is on trial, but actually, it's his accusers who need to worry. They are not judge, jury, and executioner, as they've supposed judgment they've been trying to heap on him 
they've been actually heaping upon themselves. It's them who can't see the Father's work in their midst. It's them who can't understand the signs that they've been seeing. It's them who've ignored the call of John the Baptist, ignored the very words of Scripture. It's them who've ignored the testimony of true witnesses and have instead sought affirmation and approval from others rather than God. And if they haven't seen all of that, something must be wrong. The crux of the matter is found down in verse 42. They do not have the love of God in their hearts. As Gary Burge writes, they love the religious life, but they've forgotten how to love God. And in doing so, they will find themselves on the wrong side of the judgment to be passed down. And the theme of judgment throughout the Bible is one that we in the 21st century West can really struggle to get our heads around. To try and reconcile a God of love with a God who judges. We like the idea of justice, of God setting to right things that are wrong. That sounds great, doesn't it? We don't like the idea of judgment, of God actually doing that. That's what judgment is in the Bible. It's God's action in lifting up the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, people like the man at the pool, and bringing down those who've exploited them and imprisoned them and sidelined them. That's the way it's been known by many people around the world. In fact, by most Christians throughout most of history, God's promise of judgment, of setting the world to rights, of banishing evil and restoring the fullness of life that was always intended. It's been a deeply cherished source of hope for the many people throughout history and around the world today who know themselves to be subjected to injustice. Economic injustice, racial injustice, political injustice, spiritual injustice. That's why we find that some of the books of the Bible that are written to those suffering the most persecution in the hardest places are those that speak most often of judgment. They're the ones that are most cherished by the church around the world today who know what it is to live under oppression. And the challenge for us, the challenge for me, is to recognize that we're not just interested observers on this stuff. It's for me to know that I am caught up in a world where, as Adrian outlined last week, there's a power of sin which goes beyond an individual's choices, that has in fact ensnared the world, that's wormed its way into every aspect of our lives and our relationships and our culture that the power that had ensnared the man by the pool, that still ensnared him, even though he'd been healed, Jesus comes to bring true freedom. That's what lies behind his kind of cryptic words in verse 14. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. It kind of sounds like, has Jesus traded grace for karma? No. 
Jesus knows that this man's body may be healed, but his need for true freedom goes much deeper. And so does ours. What's felt as justice for the oppressed is felt as judgment for the oppressor. And there's something that I know I have to reckon with being caught up in the system in which we're living. I have to reckon that I'm caught up as a participant in injustices in our system as a white man in the West in my 20s. I'm caught up with the historic imbalances around the world because of the way that our country has related to other countries. I'm caught up in structural inequalities that are built into the very fabric of our nation. Inequalities of wealth and gender and race. That I'm living in the midst of a broken system and I don't quite know how to deal with that. And that's something that I know I have to reckon with, that I've felt pressing upon me as I've prepared for this this week. And it's an uncomfortable thing to have to reckon with. Andy McCulloch, uh, in his superb book, Global Humility, writes this, you find out what your fig leaves are if you get angry when they're eaten by worms. In other words, when the things we use to protect ourselves from the reality of our broken world and the way in which we are caught up in it are stripped away, it's deeply uncomfortable and deeply exposing. Fleming Rutledge writes this, God's justice will involve a dramatic reversal, however, which will not necessarily be received as good news by those presently on top of the heap. Brackets, reader, that means us. And all of that would be very, very bad news if it weren't for what Jesus says in this passage. Verse 22, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. The courtroom has been flipped upside down. Jesus isn't in the dock, he's got the gavel. He is the one who will take responsibility for the setting to rights of all things. That the one who comes to judge is not a distant and aloof, all-seeing eye in the sky. He is the very Jesus who comes and brings comfort to the hurting and the broken and the rejected, who speaks life and love into the darkest of situations. Only a God of love would act decisively to put an end to suffering and injustice. And that's the God who's revealed by Jesus. One who put an end to suffering and injustice wherever he went and whoever he met. Right at the start, we looked at how the scene has been laid out as a courtroom drama. It's a precursor, a foretaste of the trial that is to come at the end. But in that one, rather than a just judge setting things to rights, we find a mock show trial with scheming high priests and weak-willed Roman governors where the guilty man is set free and the innocent one is condemned to death. But John wants us to see that even in that trial, even as Jesus is accused 
and condemned and executed. The twist that he's revealed here is still playing out. Jesus is still the judge, even in that trial. Jesus is still the judge, even as he is judged. And in fact, the judgment that falls on him, the guilty verdict he receives, mirrors the guilty judgment that he levels against his accusers and ultimately against us. As he is judged, Jesus serves judgment on those who have condemned him. He serves judgment on the very power of sin and death that has ensnared the world, on the systems of injustice and inequality that persisted then and persist now, and on the rebellion that we've each chosen in walking away from the goodness and life that he's offered us. He serves judgment on it all, and then, inexplicably, astoundingly, he bears it in our place. He becomes, as Karl Barth says, the judge judged in our place. He carries in himself all of that weight of sin and shame and injustice and brokenness. He carries it on the long walk to the cross and he puts it to death there as he dies. The only perfect man the only sinless savior hangs on a tree and bears the weight of everything that's gone wrong in our world. But it's not the end of the story. If things ended there, what hope would we have in a world where sin and shame and injustice and brokenness seem to persist? The promise of the resurrection is that new creation has come. New creation born in the midst of the old, born in a world where the power of death has been broken, but not yet done away with as it will one day be. The brokenness of the world has been found to be insufficient to match the wholeness and life that is found in Jesus. New creation is here. Sonship is here. Resurrection life is here. Everything is different because of Jesus. It's all about him. And so we're called to be different too. We're called to be different in living, knowing Jesus as the son, as the life, as the word. I know for me, the danger of what I do working for Oasis is that I can so quickly and so easily end up going through the motions to living like the Jewish leaders just running through the religious life, but without allowing the love of God to come and warm my heart and draw me to him every day. But the more we understand Jesus's identity, the more we come to see our own identity in the light of that. We are loved like he is loved. We're filled with his resurrection life. We're invited to hear his words spoken over us again a word of comfort, a word of hope, a word of courage, a word of faith, even a word of life, a word with power to create, even as in the beginning. Like the man by the pool, Jesus notices us. 
He draws near. He has all we need. What do you need from Jesus today? And we're called to be different in how we relate to others. Do we continue in patterns of injustice that persist in our world? By no means, as Paul would say in Romans. Just as Jesus' victory over sin on the cross is the motivation for us to strive for holiness, so too is his bearing of every injustice the motivation for us to seek to transform the cycles of brokenness in our own lives, in our communities, and around the world. And that might involve some hard questions for us in how we relate to those around us. What does it look like for you to allow Jesus to increasingly shape your life in how you relate to others? But ultimately, and finally, we're called to look to Jesus again, to look to him and to live. He is true Sabbath rest. He's the very source of freedom and wholeness and hope. He is the eternal son overflowing with life, speaking a fresh word to you today. He is the just judge, judged in our place to bring us near and to draw us home. That's who Jesus is. That's what he's born. That's what he's done. And he's for you. Will you have him today? Will you have him this morning? Why don't we stand? I'm going to pray and then we're going to finish. These are the words of Charles Spurgeon in his last sermon. He's a a 19th century preacher. He endured much hardship in his life, depression and sickness. And at the end of it all, this is what he said. Jesus is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yes, lavish and superabundant in love, you always find it in him. We always find it in him. Jesus, we come to you this morning knowing that we are caught up in brokenness. Like the man by the pool, we are unable to help ourselves. And yet you come. You come with your grace. You come with your power. You go not just to the surface, but to the very depth of who we are. You speak identity and truth and hope and life into us. You bear 
on our behalf all the things that we could never bear. And you call us to be caught up with you in your resurrection project to bring new life to all of creation. To bring wholeness where there's brokenness. To bring life where there is death. And so Jesus, we say, would you come and have your way in us? Would you speak that fresh word to us today? That word of life, that word of comfort, that word of truth. You are the just judge, judged in our place. That we might live free, free from shame, free from hopelessness, free from condemnation, free to be yours. Jesus, come and have your way. Amen. Amen.